We're back today talking about one of the most important questions you can ask yourself. What's the first thing your replacement will change when you're gone? If you're new to the Bodacast, this is an irreverent podcast where we question the nice, typical conference answer to the problems facing your local worship team, and we discuss the real answers. My goal is to help grow next-level worship teams and help you learn from over a decade of my mistakes in full-time worship ministry. I don't have any ads or sponsors, so if you want to support the Bodacast, you can do that for free by sharing this episode with a friend. If you've gotten any value or even just a good laugh, do me a favor and click those three dots next to the title of this episode and then hit share episode and text it to someone who would enjoy it as well. And of course, follow the show so you can always be the first to know when a new episode is out. Blah, blah, blah. It's time to get into the good stuff. The first time I heard this question was on the Andy Stanley Leadership Podcast. He probably was the first to coin the phrase because he's just brilliant like that. But even if it didn't originate with him, it's one of the most powerful exercises you can do. We're going to talk about it today through the lens of worship ministry, but seriously, it's a great question for anyone to ask. Any role has the tendency to become stale and rote. Fresh ideas succumb to routines outdated practices continue through sheer inertia, and repeated frustrations become tolerated traditions. But it doesn't have to be like this. Years of cyclical repetition does not justify or validate poor practices. The sheer amount of time for which something has gone on may make overcoming it look intimidating or unconquerable, but that large obstacle is hollow. It has merely the illusion of permanence but you can end years and put a stop to future years of bad practices with one deliberate choice. Bad practices are the seed of bad outcomes, and bad outcomes are the seed of discouragement and discontent. Feeling discouraged? Well, if time off or going to the latest conference haven't solved your problems, it's probably time to start fixing some bad practices. So here's the question for your worship ministry. If I was no longer in this role... What's the first thing my replacement would change? Another way to say it would be, what's the first problem that my replacement would fix? Because it's not just about doing something different for the sake of different. What's that one pesky problem, that one thing that if you changed it, it would move the needle dramatically for your church or worship team? The first thing your replacement would change could be tech or gear. You know, that one piece of equipment that encompasses most of your Sunday morning prayer life. It could be the confidence monitor that occasionally turns itself off at inconvenient moments of the service. The ProPresenter computer that plays almost every video without issue. Or you need a new website. You probably have needed it for five years now, but you just don't have the time for that right now. It might be a people problem. Perhaps the outdated choir that requires hours of prep work. That same choir you can't put in the PA because they're so quiet or worse, so bad. Is it the sound guy who can't hear any frequencies above 3K, so he always has an ear-piercingly harsh mix? Maybe it's that one difficult band member who has public outbursts of anger during rehearsal. You can hear more about that issue back in episode 3. Or what if it's team silos where it just doesn't seem like the worship and production teams are a cohesive unit? Maybe it's process-related. Your onboarding process is long and unclear, and it doesn't seem like new people are sticking. 
or you haven't fully converted everyone to one system of communication. And so you end up sending planning center requests to the band, but your guest services folks are communicated via email, and there's that one lady who only does phone calls. Oh, and those calls end up taking 25 minutes at a minimum. You've probably already thought of yours right now. If it's so clear what we need to change, why do we hesitate to take action? First, it could be that it's been going on a long time. Warren Buffett said this, The chains of habit are too light to be felt until they're too heavy to be broken. I'll say it again. The chains of habit are too light to be felt until they're too heavy to be broken. And once a problem has gone on for long enough, it's easy for our perspective to shift from that's a problem that needs fixing all the way to we have to accommodate that problem. Some examples could be, hey, vocalists, uh, really learn your lyrics because you never know when that confidence monitor might go out. Or, yeah, the network is really bad in here sometimes, so uh, we sometimes can't change the monitor mix. Or, you know how glitchy our video system is. We better plan on six hours for the Christmas rehearsal, you know, just in case we have tech issues. Maybe it's bad behavior you've tolerated from difficult team members. Too much time has gone on that it seems like it would be awkward to address it now. After all, their behavior isn't necessarily worse than usual right now. Wouldn't it be unfair to call them out on it? Nope. Your past tolerance won't mean anything to your replacement, who, if they have any spine, will address it on day one. And it shouldn't stop you either. If it's process-based, the favorite justification is, we've been doing it this way for X number of years. Now, people love to whip this one out for all occasions, but it's especially popular to use this tactic on younger leaders. Here's your new response. If we've been doing it this way for X number of years, we're due for a change. Overdue, depending on how many years that X is. Side note, if your supervisor or senior pastor is fond of this excuse, it's time to move on. I'm not talking about if you're a volunteer on the worship team and you have a crazy idea like putting the drums in the back of the room. No, I'm talking to hired worship pastors, the ones who are in charge of the decision-making for worship at your church. If your supervisor or senior pastor loves this excuse, it's time to get out of there. Jesus said you can't store new wine in old wineskins. The regressive posture is as terrible as the hypocritical logic. Let's say that you're 25 years old and they're 50, but they won't change because we've been doing it this way for 25 years. Well, do the math. That means that 25 years ago, they should never have done their own idea because they were as inexperienced as you allegedly are back when they instituted their own stupid idea. If they hired you but won't try a new idea, do yourself a favor and try a new employer. If anything is too precious in your church or worship team to change, then you have a culture problem. This is your opportunity to break loose of hardened ways and traditions, even if those traditions were of your own making, and begin a new day of flexibility and growth that comes with a culture of change. The second big reason we hesitate to take action is because of past success. This one is really difficult when it comes to methods. 
The greatest threat to future success is past success. You might say, we need to just do it how we did when we were growing. This is how so many churches end up in a time warp. It's not just about growth either. There are churches who were hungry for God and saw amazing life change. Now, back in the day, I have no doubt that they experienced a move of God wearing their weird skirts and bad haircuts inside wood-paneled sanctuaries with fake plants on the stage. But over time, the hunger faded and less lives were changed. But instead of reigniting the inner hunger, they just replicated the outer conditions. They say, well, we wore these kind of clothes, we sang these songs when God moved. If we just do those things again, that's when we'll get revival. So we don't change our haircuts, we bring more plants, we wear the clothes we did. Okay, maybe this example is too dramatic, but how many churches have confused nostalgia with revival? It's time to question your song choices, your rehearsal processes, your song leaders. What's the first thing your replacement would change? The third reason we don't take action? Just classic procrastination. You may not think you have time to address it, but I guarantee your replacement will find the time quickly. What happened to me is I got better at managing my to-do list than I was at actually fixing the problems. It doesn't take any skill to add items to a to-do list or spend hours shuffling them around under the guise of prioritizing them. This is fake work that distracts us from the actual effort it might take to tackle the problems. It doesn't require any confrontation to move a to-do list item. There's no fear of failure when it comes to getting a new notebook to better organize the things you'll do one day. Coincidentally, most of the problems are going to be solved way quicker than we fear. It turns out that the emotional labor and dread we carry is actually bigger than the so-called giant we're so afraid to face. Maybe you're postponing dealing with that issue uh, until Christmas is over. John Wooden said it best. If you don't have time to do it right, when will you have time to do it over? The fourth reason we don't take action is because the pain threshold is not high enough to make us change. If the discomfort is continuous enough, our bodies condition us to become accustomed to it. But your personal ability to ignore the problem does not diminish the importance of the change you need to make. I can tell you from firsthand experience that the joy of solving a problem is so much greater than the compounded pain of repeated frustration. If you can spend one hour fixing a problem that costs you 15 minutes every week, you will have paid for it in just four weeks. This is what happens. Something is small and it's like, ah, yeah, I have to deal with that issue for a few minutes every week. Those minutes add up. Horrifically, if you don't invest that hour to fix the problem, it will cost you 13 hours over the course of a year. Reiterating what we discussed in episode 3, you may have gotten used to that difficult team member, but what if their poor attitude or weird comments are driving away your new volunteers? Maybe you migrated to Planning Center from an old number system that you had in the 80s and 90s, and you may have your weird thousand plus song number system memorized, but it doesn't make any sense to a new worship team member to log into Planning Center and see the set list will be 717. 156, 600, and new song, More Than Able, number coming soon. Then they have to go and find the database and find what songs are those three numbers you had in there. It's crazy. And 
If you think that example sounds wild, I guarantee you're doing something just as weird. So now what? Now that you have some clarity around what you need to change, change it. Your replacement is not going to ask permission. Why wait for your successor to be praised tomorrow for progress you're capable of making today? Jokes aside, if you are not setting up the next person God has for your role, you are being a poor steward of what God has entrusted to you. I have been the replacement many times, both to people who did not set me up to win and to some who made my entry a lot smoother because of what they changed before I arrived. Let me tell you, I've had to skip communion because of the former, but would happily give the latter a holy kiss greeting. Joshua Fields Milburn says, one day or day one, you decide. So let's talk about time management. Maybe you found yourself in my situation, where as your responsibilities increased, so did the amount of meetings that you're invited to. What happens is that the time in your day seems to be drowned by the plethora of hour-long meetings, whether regularly scheduled or just totally random meetings. And the only time left seems to be fringe bits, 15 minutes here. That's not enough to even get started on anything of substance. Or 25 minutes there, that's an awkward predicament, where just as you're diving into it, it's time to head to your next meeting. One popular solution is to become a full-blown workaholic. Tackle your big projects at home late at night or work on the weekends. You know you've become sick in the head when they announce the church office will be closed between Christmas and New Year's and your first thought is, ooh, think of the opportunity I'll have to catch up on my work. Stop it. That's the track to an unsustainable burn. Your family deserves better and going at that rate will set you up for burnout at the very least and perhaps much worse. Some examples, you start resenting people in your office who have the nerve to actually have margin or take time off, or maybe you neglect personal care like sleep or exercise. You might think, I might as well catch up on emails while I'm wasting time eating dinner. If you've thought this recently, you're in trouble. You open yourself up for self-destructive self-medication and a whole host of other problems that you're not equipped to fight off when you're stressed and distracted. So, how do you make time to address what needs to be changed? Well, I'm a proponent of the full focus system, which in its essence forces you to condense your overwhelming to-do list down to just your three most valuable objectives. These quarterly goals are your big three, the ones that are extremely important but could very easily get lost in the endless deluge of daily tasks. A great way to make time for your goals is to literally schedule blocked off appointments with your big three the same way you would with meetings. And instead of giving your leftover time to your goals, establish a substantive amount of time as a priority and block it off as busy in your calendar. I typically schedule an hour and a half chunks for big three focus. And when someone wants to schedule a meeting, decline meeting times that would interrupt your commitment. Resist the urge to budge on that time, and you'll be amazed how quickly you become the employee who actually makes progress on your goals. You wouldn't tell your boss, sorry, I, I can't meet with our one-to-one -to -one today because Jill wants my input on connection card designs at that same time. No, you would tell Jill to find a different time or just send you an email so you can delete it. No, I mean reply with your input. 
Until your goals become a higher priority than your distractions, you will never bring your leadership or your team to the next level. Speaking of emails, never leave your inbox sitting open. Schedule meetings with your email as well. I have three 15-minute meetings with my email for reading and replying. If you have to flag an email and dedicate time to craft a response later, that's a sign that your reply needs to be in person or over a phone call. Don't waste your time creating masterpiece emails. Spend your time on work that matters. This, of course, means turning off all email notifications on all devices. Email is just everyone else's to-do list for your day. It's also a cop-out way to avoid having to take your own initiative and keep yourself busy with fake work. You were made to make the change. Now, I know I've been a total meanie this episode, but it's only because I want to spare you all my wasted time avoiding the changes that actually made a difference in my teams and in my church. You are a leader. You have God-given talents, and you're growing your skills every day. You were not made to accept the problems that you've been gifted and called to fix. Your time is worth more than the distractions, the meetings, and the emails that would happily fill up your entire calendar and your focus. You are made to challenge the status quo, whether it's been self-perpetuated or externally enforced by the impotent traditions of your leaders. There is no better gift you can give your replacement than making as much progress as possible so they can focus on accomplishing their mission, not fixing your accumulation of ignored problems. 